Welcome to the Semantic Cybersecurity Brief, our weekly podcast where we discuss all things cybersecurity. I'm Dick O'Brien, and joining me today is Semantic Threat Researcher Bridget O'Gorman. In this week's podcast, we'll be talking about an operator of one of the world's most dangerous botnets who was caught and got off with just a slap on the wrist, how a new Windows vulnerability was unexpectedly revealed on Twitter, and how some cybercriminals are starting to move away from the dark web. But first, election hacking. The US midterm elections are coming up in November and, after everything that happened in the run-up to the presidential election two years ago, political parties in the US are on high alert for hackers attempting to undermine their campaigns. The Democratic Party uncovered a cyber attack last week, but it turned out to be not all that it seemed. Uh, What happened here, Dick? Yes, um, the Democratic National Committee, uh, which is essentially the main governing body for the Democratic Party last week, called in the FBI after it discovered evidence of an attempted cyber attack. Now, what happened here was that early on Tuesday morning, a cloud services firm and a security research firm both flagged some suspicious activity to the DNC. And what they noticed was that someone had created a fake login page for a service called Vote Builder. And Vote Builder is the Democrats portal which hosts the party's main database. Uh, This page could then be used to trick people into giving up their username and passwords. Um, And once it was set up, the attackers could potentially start sending spear phishing emails to party officials with a link to that fake page saying you need to log in and change your password or something like that. And all it would take would be maybe for just one person to fall for it. And then, bam, the attackers have access to the database. Yeah, so potentially pretty serious. And I suppose uh, there's a good reason why something like this would immediately sound alarm bells for the Democrats, isn't there? Exactly. Yeah, this was one of the main ways that the Democratic Party was hacked in the lead up to the presidential election. The attackers used spear phishing emails um, that purported to come from the recipient's webmail provider saying that they needed to change their passwords. So uh, some people were tricked by these emails and they followed the link in them, which led to a fake domain, which was designed to appear exactly like their real webmail website. And then while they were supposedly changing their passwords, they entered their existing password, which gave the attackers access to their email accounts. So the attackers then managed to steal a huge trove of emails from the party. And as we all know now, they were leaked online and these leaked emails became a huge talking point in the presidential election. So having been badly burned by the cyber attacks back in 2016, it's not surprising that the Democrats are worried about a repeat performance uh, for the midterms and they're on the lookout for any sign of spear phishing emails or websites. And uh, so naturally enough, they'd go straight to the FBI if they found any. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's understandable. But there is a bit of a twist to this story, isn't there? Yes. In this case, it turned out not to be a real cyber attack. Um, So what happened was the very next day, the party came out and said that actually it had been a security test. Uh, What had happened was the Michigan Democratic Party had commissioned some white hat hackers to carry out a penetration test. And as part of it, they created this fake website. Now, 
The only problem was that the Michigan Democrats didn't notify the DNC or the people maintaining the vote builder database that they were conducting this security test. So when the DNC was notified about it, uh, they naturally thought a real cyber attack might be underway and they immediately went to the FBI. Oh God, yeah, I mean, naturally they would think that. I suppose all of this is a bit embarrassing for the Democrats really, isn't it? It is, yeah, and by all accounts, the Michigan people were pretty mortified uh, about causing such a fuss. And I'm sure nobody at the DNC then wanted to be the person who had to ring the FBI and say, uh, you know, that cyber attack we told you about yesterday. Well, actually, that was us all along. But um, it isn't all bad uh, news for them. I suppose there's some positives here because this was about a breakdown in communications rather than a breakdown in security. And it does demonstrate that they're taking their cybersecurity extremely seriously this time around to the extent that you've got state branches of the party carrying out their own penetration testing and headquarters being immediately made aware of any potential cyber attacks. So if you had to make a choice between, say, getting caught out by lax security or triggering a false alarm because you're being a little bit overzealous about security, I think I know what most people would pick. Um, so having said all that, uh, the election is, is still months away, um, so it remains to be seen how this all plays out and if we're going to see any major instance like we did two years ago. Um, but what you can pretty much guarantee is that any attacks or attempted attacks even will be major news items, so it probably won't be the last time we're going to be discussing this issue on the podcast in the next few months. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, so I guess we'll park that issue there for the moment and um, move on to the next thing we wanted to talk about today, um, which also has something of a law enforcement angle uh, because one of the operators behind the Andromeda botnet uh, has been released from jail in Belarus. And uh, I think you have the latest developments on the story. Yeah, so um, this week it was announced that one of the hackers behind the Andromeda botnet, um, Surya Yaritz, who also went by the pseudonym online of AR3S. R3s, I don't know really how you pronounce it, but we'll go with AR3S. R3s, maybe, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to guess yeah. it. Um, had been released from prison, from prison in Belarus, and that all, all of the charges against him um, had been dropped. So the charges were dropped uh, according to the news reports out of this because Yartz apparently cooperated with the investigators in Belarus and he reportedly handed over the profits he had made from renting the Andromeda botnet to other cyber criminals. Um, now reportedly this profit only amounts to 11,000 Belarusian rubles which is roughly $5,500 um, which does seem like a pretty small amount. He was also fined one and a half thousand dollars, um, but he didn't actually have to pay this because he was basically given credit for the six months that um, he did spend in prison after he was arrested in December last year. Now, I mean, he originally faced up to 10 years in jail, so it does appear that he really got off quite lightly. Um, and apparently part of the reason that he did escape so lightly, according to the judge and to the reports in this case, uh, was because there were no Belarusian victims because Yaritz had configured the botnet and the malware so that it wouldn't affect users in Belarus or residents of um, several other countries also in the kind of former Soviet bloc. Um, however, you know, this sort of attitude has been criticised by some people in the cybersecurity community because obviously 
this leniency ignores the damage that was done to people outside of the country, outside of Belarus itself. Yeah, I mean, cybercrime has no borders, really. So if every country adopted this attitude, nobody would really... uh, face any kind of um, severe consequences for what they got up to online as long as they, they managed to steer clear of um, uh, targeting people in their own country. Yeah, exactly. Um, so can you tell us a little bit more about Andromeda itself? Um, how serious was it? How, how, how did it impact people? Yeah, so it was it was a pretty huge botnet um, and it was demand, excuse me, dismantled um, at the end of last year, kind of end of November, start of December 2017. And the operations to dismantle it was pretty huge. It involved the FBI, Europol, and various other um, partners in both the private and government sectors, basically all working together um, to dismantle it. And Andromeda had been operating for quite a while by the time it was taken down. I think since 2011 was when it first um, appeared on the scene. And the malware was mainly used to download other types of malware. So basically, Andromeda would infect a machine and then it could download other types of malware to the device it had infected. So it basically gave the cyber criminals who used it access to a huge number of devices to a huge botnet. Um, and it was associated with more than 80 malware families. And in the six months before it got taken down last year, um, the Andromeda malware was blocked on an average of 1 million machines every single month. So it was quite a significant um, presence, I suppose, on the cybercrime scene, really. And its creation is tied to um, an unknown Russian um, who used the pseudonym Wahoo online. Um, but researchers uh, say that Yaris was the person who was controlling the botnet when it was actually shut down by authorities um, last year. And interestingly, the shutdown of Andromeda was actually facilitated following the shutdown of another huge botnet the previous year, um, avalanche oh right um, do you can you tell us more about how they were connected yeah sure so the avalanche that avalanche even uh takedown was another pretty major operation um, and semantic researchers were actually involved in that and in bringing about the takedown of avalanche and that took place in december 2016 and again that happened after like a very like wide-ranging investigation um, on behalf of, again, kind of both authorities and private sector companies that had gone on for about four years. And the operation to take it down involved the coordination of, you know, numerous different law enforcement. And it saw hundreds of thousands of domains taken offline in one day. And these domains were associated with about 20 different malware families, which had used Avalanche botnet to spread all around the world. And the link to Andromeda is that police found important information about Andromeda on one of the computers that they seized uh, during the takedown of Avalanche. Okay. So this is what ultimately led to that to Andromeda being shut down. So it was quite a um, significant link, really, between the two. But um, anyway, let's move on from A to Z, <laughs> from Andromeda to zero days, uh, because our next item is about a zero-day vulnerability in Windows, uh, which was unexpectedly disclosed on Twitter this week. So, Dick, uh, that's not usually how we hear about these vulnerabilities, is it? Yeah, no, it certainly isn't. And uh, it's probably going to cause a few headaches for people until it's patched. Um, So a zero-day vulnerability is essentially a previously unknown software vulnerability that has yet to be patched. And we usually hear about new vulnerabilities in one of two ways. If they've been discovered by, say, the bad guys 
they're usually uncovered when people discover them being exploited to perform cyber attacks. And if they're discovered by the good guys, who are usually security researchers, um, maybe independent uh, researchers or people working for security firms like ours, what usually happens is that they notify the software vendor and the existence of the vulnerability is only publicly disclosed when the software is patched. So it might be a month or two after the notification takes place that we finally hear about the existence of the, this vulnerability. Yes, that's a pretty standard practice, but it's not what happened here, is it? No, no. Uh, in this case, a seemingly disgruntled security researcher known as Sandbox Escaper posted a proof of concept code on GitHub. So that's essentially code which uh, exploits the vulnerability and it's used to prove that you know this vulnerability is there and it, and, it, and it works. And she then took to Twitter and put a link up to the code on GitHub. And of course, immediately uh, loads of people noticed this and downloaded it and tried it out. And uh, it turned out that yes, it was a real vulnerability and the proof of concept code was verified by the uh, CERT Coordination Center Vulnerability Analysis, a guy called Phil Dorman, who said it worked perfectly well on a fully patched 64-bit Windows 10 system. Oh wow, so pretty serious then. So why did she release the code? Uh, it's hard to say really. I think she was going through a little bit of a tough time and did it impulsively. Um, she did later apologise on Twitter and said it was she who'd screwed up and, and not Microsoft. Okay, so how bad is this vulnerability then? Um, it's, the vulnerability occurs because of a flaw in how the Microsoft Windows Task Scheduler handles uh, advanced local procedure call. Uh, it's like ALPC, it's called. And it means that an attacker who has local access to an affected computer could exploit it in order to obtain, obtain system privileges. Now, the key word here is local. Uh, so that means that an attacker needs to already be on the affected computer to exploit the vulnerability. And that kind of severely limits the circumstances in which you can exploit the flaw. So the most serious vulnerabilities we come across uh, usually are those which are remotely exploitable, which means that an attacker can exploit the vulnerability from another computer. They might be on the same network or they might even be over the internet. Um, so that doesn't mean that this vulnerability is trivial by any means. It just means it's maybe not quite as serious as some of these remote execution uh, vulnerabilities because the attacker needs to find a way to get onto the affected computer first in order to exploit it. So there needs to be a few other steps in a cyber attack uh, before they can you know, make use of this exploit. Okay, so not entirely straightforward. And are Microsoft planning to patch this vulnerability, do we know? Yes, uh, they are. Um, a spokesperson for Microsoft uh, told the media this week that they were aware of the vulnerability and they were working on a fix. And that means that a patch is likely to be rolled out in their next update. Um, they usually publish their software updates on the second Tuesday of every month. Uh, what's widely known as Patch Tuesday. So the next one of those is due on September the 11th. Um, so that's not too far away now. So hopefully we won't see any attempts to exploit it between now and then because um, otherwise we may end up <laughs> talking about this vulnerability again next week or the week after. 
Um, so until then, uh, let, let's move on because um, there's um, a few stories uh, we wanted to talk about before we finished up concerning the dark web, I gather. Yeah, so I came across two stories this week that were linked to the dark web. I suppose the first one is really a tale of cyber criminals moving away from the dark web okay, um, and using other services. And this is really in the wake of uh, like some major dark web shutdowns of dark web marketplaces, including Alpha Bay and Hansa, which were two of the biggest um, dark web, web marketplaces up to them being shut down last year. And this appears, these shutdowns appears to have um, inspired cyber criminals to advertise their wares elsewhere. Uh, with researchers revealing that cyber criminals are using the secure messaging service Telegram to advertise cybercrime courses um, where budding cyber criminals can learn about things like hacking and carding and other tricks of the trade, I suppose. So the cyber criminals are getting ready to go back to school then. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> much, like, much like many other people uh, in the country. Uh, so it would seem... And I suppose, yeah, where once, you know, these kind of cybercrime colleges would have advertised their courses um, on dark, dark web marketplaces like those I've mentioned, mm. um, they are now turning to alternative mediums like Telegram. And um, researchers from risk management firm uh, Digital Shadows were writing about this, and they found an organisation called the University of Cybersecurity and Anonymity, which was hosting free lecture videos on Telegram. So it would have a free lecture on Telegram, and then it would then use this to basically upsell its services, to advertise its services. And according to its advertisements, it offers four different courses, and they're about $1,100 each. And they promise 70 unique lectures and 40 educational days. So, I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a professional offering, you know. It doesn't just seem to be a, a slapdash operation. Yeah. You know, and it says its offerings, yeah, includes lectures and workshops on things like currency laundering, cash withdrawal schemes, social engineering, botnet creation, and the use of exploits. So, uh, quite the range of offerings for the budding cyber criminal. And I suppose, well, it's interesting to look at developments like this. You know, obviously is also you know a little bit worrying because it means there's cyber criminals out there training up the next generation of cyber criminals you know to proactively i suppose take over their work in another few years yeah and it's always amazing at how professional some of these operations yeah. can be <laughs> 70 unique lectures yeah, it's very for example. Professional. <laughs> um so it's a bit worrying and i think uh we also have some examples uh featuring uh existing cyber criminals as well yeah so i suppose maybe it's maybe these are this is a cautionary tale really for the the cyber criminals taking the aforementioned uh courses yeah. because um another news broke this week as well um about an operation called darkness falls operation darkness falls and this uh targeted a number of online cyber criminals and um, the Department of Justice in the US announced last week that it had arrested um, a number of individuals had, who had been using dark marketplaces to sell the synthetic opiate fentanyl, as well as other cybercrimes. And fentanyl has become notorious in the US uh, because it's one of the drugs that is very strongly linked to the opiate crisis um, over there. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's um, it seems to be behind an awful lot of um stories regarding overdoses and things like that. So, what happened with the law enforcement operation? Yeah, so the U.S. Department of Justice said it made several arrests, and that it had even already got some guilty pleas as part of this operation, Darkness Falls, and the people arrested as part of it, they were using these dark marketplaces to sell fentanyl as well as other drugs, and 
two of the most high profile people who were arrested as part of this operation were actually a married couple um, called Matthew Roberts and Holly Roberts who were 35 and from San Antonio or based in San Antonio in Texas and they were described um, in the press release from the Department of Justice as the most prolific darknet fentanyl vendors in the US and the fourth most prolific in the world. Well. Yeah, so pretty serious um, cyber criminals. And when they were arrested, they were using the pseudonym MH for life, <laughs> um, which doesn't really seem like the username of, you know, cybercrime geniuses, as obviously it uses their real initials. But um, there you go. And authorities say that they have been active since 2011, so really for quite a long time. And they've used various pseudonyms in that time. And they've sold on dark marketplaces such as Alpha Bay, Dream Market, and even going back to Silk Road. But um, it seems that their kind of Bonnie and Clyde existence has ended for the moment anyway, as they have now been charged with conspiracy to distribute controlled substances along with other crimes that are awaiting trial in the US. Okay, um, it's just a really incongruous the contrast of like MH for life and then they're selling fentanyl. Yeah, um, <laughs> it really is. Okay, uh, that is about all we have time for this week. Um, If you have been enjoying the podcast, uh, don't forget to subscribe uh, to avoid missing out. Uh, You can also follow us on Twitter at Threat Intel or Medium at medium.com forward slash Threat hyphen Intel. If you want to lead our latest research, uh, check out our blog, which can be found on semantic.com forward slash blogs forward slash Tresh hyphen intelligence. We'll be back again next week when we'll be once again looking at what's going on in the world of cybersecurity. Until then, thank you and goodbye.